This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us is here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and joining me this evening is Mr. Jeff Abercrombie. Jeff, welcome back. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Um, glad to be able to join you again uh, back when it's Pacific, uh, a reasonable time on uh, the Pacific Coast here. Absolutely. And we are now one week away from the NFL draft, and we are very excited to be joined by a special guest tonight, Mr. Matt Wallman. Matt, welcome back to the Saturday to Sunday football podcast. I was just telling your buddy Sig Bloom last week that I think you guys will always vie for the top two spots in most appearances here at Saturday to Sunday. And it means a great deal to us that we get to have you guys on once or twice every single year. How are you doing this evening? Man, it's always great to be able to do this show with you guys. And I'm glad to get a chance to finally meet Jeff face to face, even if it's virtually, because I always see him on Twitter. And and it's always nice to be. I'm glad that we get to make the rounds. It's a privilege that Bloom and I can can get a chance to be on a show like this. I was just recommending Saturday to Sunday to a fantasy analyst who's getting into Devi work, um, you know, into Devi leagues and wanted some advice at some point. And, uh, and you guys were, you know, at the top of the list of folks that I would say, listen, they, you got to check out their work. Well, thank you so much. That means a great deal coming from you. We know you put the time and the process into this and, and those are really kind words for, from you. So before we kind of kick into analyzing these prospects, because I think it's a really unique class. I, I, I never remember seeing so much different takes from so many really great respected minds in, in, the, in the industry. I know Jeff wanted to throw a question at you, a little bit more of like a process-oriented question before we, we start talking a little bit about prospects and dig into this 2022 class. So Jeff, take it away. Yeah, I mean, you know, Paul, you allude to how – you know, different this class is in from from many of the other ones where I, I think there's an amazing set of deep talent available, but you know, each you know player brings something different to the table. And unlike other classes, you you know, we may not be quite as strong on the top, especially when it comes to the skill position players. And so I think what the most important thing when you take a look at a class like this is you know, having a structured evaluative process that spans, you know, draft class to draft class, you know, that way you're not, you know, overreaching on a prospect like, uh, you know, the first quarterback taken in the draft, perhaps, you know, might not be the, you know, we might not see more than two quarterbacks in the first round of this class because of, you know, how we go year to year. And one of the things that I've admired most um about matt is not only how detailed his process is but but how transparent he is about that when he talks when he goes through it in his um in his publication the rookie scouting portfolio and i really wanted to just you know do a quick overview because of you know because i think there's a lot that you know we can all learn from that and um you know i think the first one is you know there's there's a lot of debate between you know, thing, you know, reacting with maybe I'll call them whimsical changes, you know, when, you know, something happens one year and you kind of overreact and you, you kind of yank your process back and forth. And then one of the things that you've talked quite openly about is the evolution of your process as you learn more. So how do you find the balance between those, you know, kind of like two extremes? 
First of all, I just want to thank you for asking that question because for I, I'm very fortunate that I get to be on a number of shows and, and I know that each group has their own specific audience. So that's why I'm fortunate because I get exposure to that audience. But there are some folks who follow me around a little bit. And on behalf of them, I want to thank you for asking some questions that they have not heard. Um, and and this is a this is a one that's a lot of fun to to talk about because it when the pro the thing about the process of having it let it evolve is that you want it to be done in a in a, as much of an incremental fashion as you can because one player you could misidentify what it is that you missed or hit on with one player. So even when I write about something like say Dak Prescott and how that led me to change how I looked at quarterbacks, he was, that was more of a snappy title in the sense that he was a big driver, but he wasn't the only driver. There were also years of looking at quarterbacks and going back to some of them after seeing what Dak where I looked at Dak Prescott and saw that there were that there were issues that were common with a lot of the quarterback misses that I had, where it was because I didn't feel like I saw enough tape, for instance. Maybe I maybe my process was getting in the way and needed to be streamlined. So what happens for me oftentimes is that it's not whether I hit or miss on a player. It's really about what do I see that's in common with a lot of players. And usually it's when I'm studying the NFL game with those players that, and not even always the players that I hit or miss on at that moment, but just players in general that I start to look at and go, okay, these players don't have the releases that fit what I'm looking for, you know, at a wide receiver position, or, or they play with these different sets of techniques, or they don't have these combination of skills that I thought, but they're succeeding. What is it that I'm missing or what is it or I or I didn't think this was as important as it actually is when I'm studying the NFL game, because I'm always trying to project to the NFL and use the NFL standard as my my template. So I'm constantly taking notes back here. I mean, I know I, I I'm sure people who've seen this that's backboard blackboard behind me are probably like, well, I haven't seen much changes of this if you keep up with me and, you know, in the past, you know, six months. But what I do is I tend to I tend to make notes on spreadsheets and then I go back to the back blackboard if it's something that I really want to hang on to and decide that I may implement a change down the line. And then I may implement some changes where they're not in the book. They're not as an official part of my process, but they're things that I may do, you know, that's kind of like in a test research and development phase type of thing where I may add something in and say, let me look at this as well as these other things and just grade that and see how it would have changed things. If I'm actually, if I actually go ahead and do it and, and just see if, um, you know, and that usually involves, you know, whether I'm changing the weight of a scoring system, whether I'm redefining what I'm looking for, whether I need to go back and look at coaching manuals or, or, um, you know, talk with someone, you know, a couple of years, probably about five or six years ago, wide receiver was always one of those positions where I felt like I was hit or miss. Like I had some really good picks with players and then I had some that just didn't work out at all. And so some of those, some of those are hard to decide, 
Like I'll look at, like I'll mention Hakeem Butler and Dante Pettis as good examples. What am I really supposed to do about Hakeem Butler having rated him number one and we never saw him take the field? Now you could, as a common sense person, you would say, well, then obviously that didn't work out. But until you understand why, how are you going to apply any of that to your process? Are you going to make assumptions? Because there's some assumptions people made about players I hit on that were they were like, well, if he does this, that's not good, when actually it is good. And and so someone like that, or a Dante Pettis, where you look at him and you know, people will go, Well, that didn't work out either. And 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 I'm thinking, well, if Kyle Shanahan said while he had Dante Pettis in his doghouse and was quoted as saying he could be one of the best receivers in the league if he just applies himself, the talent is there. Well, then I look at that as a hit. I don't look at that as a miss. It may have been a maybe a miss for a fantasy player, but in terms of evaluating talent, when your head coach who has put you in a doghouse is telling the media he should be the, one of the best players on our team, if not one of the best receivers in the league, you know, if he just does what he's supposed to do, then I've done my job. So you, you have, you know, and then there's sometimes the players I I hit on with the ranking. But I missed in terms of seeing things that in granular detail well enough that's going to help me out with other players. So it's a process of where I'm I'm constantly taking notes. I'm trying to put them into a, a position where I can look down the line and say, all right, how can I apply this differently? And is this appearing oh is this appearing also in the college game? What I'm noticing in the pro game? Is is this something that I need? Is this something that I missed in the college game? And if it's yes, then it's time to you know, kind of go through that process of trying to figure out the weight of it, how to define it, looking at football information and, and talking with, you know, the coaches or scouts and asking them what they think and and going from there. Yeah, <clears throat> Matt, what you just said there, I think, is is one of the reasons why since I've gotten to know you and and purchased the RSP and started purchasing it years ago is your process is, is what I find so fascinating because – you know, what we consume out there on Draft Twitter, on NFL Network, on ESPN, there's just so much groupthink. And there's only so – there's very, very few people that really show their process, the entire process. There's very few people that actually don't – and completely wipe out the groupthink and completely – you know, listen, I, I understand it's hard for a guy like Daniel Jeremiah when he has, like, scouts and people in his ear. It's It's impossible not to – somehow let that affect your thinking and that's the thing that i've always loved about your approach and process and and this is such an inexact science no one's gonna have a good batting average no, no one is it's, it's just that simple and i'm sure over the years you've done this you know at saturday sunday not even you know nearly as long as you were at, at this at the size you know the amount of coverage and people and stuff like that you probably get so much pushback at times or this guy was a miss, this guy was that. And it's, it's all about the process, right? All we can do is have a process in terms of how we evaluate these guys. And then there's so many factors that go into whether or not they reach that success. And as you even said with, with the Dante Pettis, which is fascinating, what he just said, it's impossible for us to know that where we are, that he wasn't going to be a professional like that. But his coach obviously sort of talent within him. So I think that's what makes – the process so fascinating and we always and I was I was telling you know Jeff earlier today just like be like 
yeah, we're we're not going to say one word about fantasy football tonight, and we're not going to say one word about an RB one and might he do this or might he do that. I was like, because we just don't do that when Matt comes on. We talk about the players, we talk about the process, we talk about the traits, and that's what's so fun about this because who knows what's going to happen after the draft. I understand we're all. You know, a lot of our listeners and stuff and consumers are fantasy oriented people, but the process and the evaluation is what's so fascinating. And I think we can use that as the as the transitioning point right to the, this quarterback class, because even this quarterback class, I feel like the the consensus is not really there, so to speak. People have a favorite. This one's a favorite. This one's a favorite. And I know you put these guys all through your process and some of your findings and, and how guys graded on this was against the group think, you know, you know, I just was listening to the audible from last week and you were talking about how your one of your top guys is, uh, you know, Dame Brugler from the athletic, you know, he thinks he could be a UDFA, like, right. Like what a wide scope that is. So, you know, as I was, you know, reading through the RSP and looking through it, a couple of guys that I really kind of wanted to pick your brain on and hear your takes on them. And and, and what you saw when you put them through your process was obviously Skylar Thompson, um, and then, you know, Carson Strong, because I feel like you have looked at these guys and and you see more things that I think can transition to the NFL game than some other people. And then on the flip side, a guy like Malik Willis and Desmond Raider, who the group think really does like out there in the public sector, you know, you have found some things that you're a little bit more concerned with in terms of their ability to maybe transition as quickly or if possibly ever. So maybe maybe kind of talk us through some of those quarterbacks, you know, because I'd love to kind of hear, you know, what you're seeing and, and, and why, you know, in your process, they maybe didn't test out, didn't grade out as well as maybe other people. Yeah. And and it certainly quarterback this year was hilarious because <laughs> uh, there were, you know, every year. I'm so glad that you appreciate the going against the grain and and it's really not like purposely it's just it's just shutting out the group think until it's time to figure out what it is that I'm going to be dealing with after I've done that which is then then I'll go you know with Skylar Thompson as I've joked I I called up Chad Ryder who and I have been, have been have known each other for a while and we've become pretty good friends over the past few years and and I just said man I have a score for a guy that I know no one's really talking about other than like something that, you know, someone told me about from someone on the inside who really likes him. And I, and I told him that it was Skylar Thompson and his first response literally out of his mouth was ew, you know, and I, and we laughed, you know, and we had, we had a big laugh about it. And then he said, now though, because I know how we watch tape, you know, Chad watches 700 prospects. I, I watch, granularly at 170 so he was like knowing that he goes i'm gonna have to go back and watch and he did he he still's like i saw a couple of games that just didn't seem good to me um and then i i posed that to russ landy as well because um you know the former former nfl scout head of u.s um scouting for the montreal alouettes who stood you know while he got ryan nassib wrong and had a high grade for him some people forget that he also was one of the only ones to like Tom Brady and Mark Bolger um, and have them as underrated players who were, who, who belonged in a much higher group. And so I'd said, I think I found a guy that I really like, but it's just, it's interesting to me because I'm, I'm, I feel alone in a way that I, I haven't been in a while and it's, and I don't worry about that so much, but it was more that it was just, it wasn't like, 
of the top five, I'm the only one who likes this guy. Like this guy, I knew that based on his production and that he went to the shrine game, that he was a third day pick at best. So what's the deal here? And so, you know, we talked about it. He ended up looking at him. He goes, I'm all in. I like this guy. And then there were a couple other scouts who said, I just couldn't give him a high enough grade. And so the basis for all that to, to tell you that is that the reason that I think I like Strong and Thompson more than guys like Willis and Ritter, who are on the opposite poles of my spectrum, really, is that the longer I've been doing this, and this kind of highlights the differences between my process and maybe some other people's processes that I've seen, is that you know quarterback is so involved in so many different facets of you know technical skills, athletic skills, the intellectual acumen to memorize information and spit it back out with recall. And then the ability to really take all those things together and in disparate ways that they come at you, the outside, the external stimuli, the internal things you have to internalize and be able to process that information to create a solution at a speed of intuitive skill. You know, it's got, it's not intuition, but it's a, some of it is, but it's at the speed of processing enough so that now you're performing. And if you and I, I use this a lot, but I I feel like that when I've seen guys like Patrick Mahomes and Brett Favre or Tom Brady or any of the top quarterbacks, they process fast. And it's not about the intellect. It's not about the big arm. There's baseline levels of those things you need. But what they have missing, what they have that the guys who don't get second contracts with their same team lack is that when they see something that's about to break open, they recognize that it's about to break open and they act immediately and they have all the tools integrated together to make that happen. And often in the most difficult situations that you can't rehearse. And so they make the ease, they make the difficult plays look easy as opposed to, a lot of players we see, especially in fantasy, who we ooh and ah over, who make one or two plays every other game that make that they made it far more difficult than maybe it needed to be in the beginning, or they made a difficult play. And people are like, see, this is why that guy's great, because he can run around the field for eight seconds and make this huge throw, and he could do this at any moment, but he only does it like three times a year. And meanwhile, is, you know, sporting a 59% completion percentage, you know, hasn't thrown for 4,000 yards, isn't delivering, you know, has more interceptions and touchdowns and doesn't get a second deal. So the difference between Willis and Ritter is when I've watched them, there are plays where their processing to me was slow or absent with situations that I look at in the pros all the time and go, that's an NFL decision that has to be made. And it's not even a tough one. Sometimes they're like, these are things that maybe for the college game, it's tough, but for the NFL, this is like, you got to convert this. You're going to, or else you're going to not get the drive and you've got to have, you know, when it's tighter coverage and where the leverage is, is a certain way and you've got a layer of throw and you've got to make these calls that a Justin Herbert can do or a Matt Stafford, even a Kirk Cousins can do, you know, as your baseline level guy for that. And they couldn't do it. I I just didn't see them do it consistently enough. They made more mistakes in that regard. Whereas maybe they all the the things that people use to judge quarterbacks like 
accuracy percentage as opposed to tracking their own data to determine granularly what accuracy really is based on the route and the decision in front of them and and the placement of the ball um you know accuracy percentage is just catching the football you, you know and did they catch it doesn't matter whether it was a hard catch or a catch that was exactly where it was supposed to be and so i grade those types of things and when when i looked at guys like ritter and willis the decisions the placement weren't there for me not on the level that they were for Thompson or Corral or Strong. And those three guys also, well, Strong and, and Thompson were good at also being able to use the pocket to manipulate it in a very efficient and advanced way. Um, and then on top of that, they were able to make calls at the, at the offensive line, um, you know, in terms of making changes to the line, making changes to plays, making adjustments. Both of them played in, you know, especially Thompson played in pro-style offense, played in the West Coast offense that North Dakota State used. And so there, there are things like that that I've found when I liked Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes, um, you know, players like that more than maybe the consensus. Those were the things that drove me was the, the efficiency of movement, the ball placement, even if the accuracy percentage wasn't there as opposed to a Baker Mayfield who I didn't like, who had the accuracy percentage all day, but the placement was not good. And so it it makes sense now that when we are in a class with no real consensus that everybody's systems are different or that you've got people who are, like as Jeff said, kind of blowing with the wind and don't have a compass. And my compass is, you know, pocket management, whether you have dynamic movement or you have efficient movement, you got to have both. Or at least you at least have to have efficient movement. And if you can be dynamic, that's a plus. And placement of the football within the context of the route, the defense, um, and the anticipation of the coverage of where it's going to be open and the ability to integrate all these technical and physical skills with problems to do those two things. And those guys ended up higher than the ones who are the consensus, consensus top guys. Yeah, I want to follow up on that because, um, you know, first – you know, when you talk about, um, you know, pocket management, I think one of the uh, biggest and, and most frustrating, um, you know, uh, quick takes that, that you get out there is that these athletic quarterbacks are the ones who are going to be able to handle, you know, bad O-lines or pressure the best. And it's almost invariably the opposite, right? Because the best pocket manager is Tom Brady. And I don't think anybody would doubt that at all. <laughs> and, and we're not looking at him as a, as a Kyler Murray level athlete. And so that's, that's one of the ones that I think, um, I, you know, I've, I never really understand how people draw that sort of lazy connection. And when I think of pocket management, certainly it's great to have that tool as a weapon. We talked a lot about that with Trey Lance last year and, and what Kyle Shanahan wants. And, and, and I mean, I think that's all gravy, you know, over, you know, being able to recognize pressure, understand the micro movements, you know, to be able to step up, step sidestep and, and just sort of, you know, let the chaos evolve around you and have a calm pocket, you know, calm little bubble yourself. Um, but I also wanted to circle back and and really probe deeper on on what you mentioned, sort of integrating all the skills at a at a speed of intuition, 
And, you know, one of my favorite analogies that you use is, um, you know, when you're playing improvisational music, right? And, and you're out there and, you know, maybe you're at a, you know, at that one of those bars where they, they rotate the musicians in and you kind of step in and you're all, you know, riffing off of each other. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, one of my favorite bars in, in Campbell, California actually did that at, I think the Bell Saloon or something. It was great. Um, and it was great to watch all of these, you know, these musicians come in and, you know, be able to integrate those skills at the level of intuition. And what, I, you know, I can understand ball placement and, you know, reading leverage, and I can understand pocket management. And, and even to a certain extent, you know, the decisions and the progression and sort of NFL decision making. How do you analyze a, or, or like, what are you looking for, you know, so you could kind of grade out the speed of intuition and, and the integration of those skills? Um, how, how do you break that out for, for prospects? Yeah. And this gets into a fascinating topic of about, you know, when we look at our football media sphere, we've got the entertainers of our group. We've got the beat writers of our group who report basically what people are telling them. Um, And sometimes the entertainers are blended in with that. There's all blended combinations with these things. So I'm not, I'm painting a broad brush, Um, but you also have the analysts and within that, those analysts, you have people who analyze X's and O's and it's, they're basically like, they're like the theorists of football. You know, they're doing the math. They're like math theorists. And then you have people who are doing movement skills and talking about, um, you know, and that may be more literature and poetry, um, you know, than it is hard science, even though there's hard science behind some of those things, but the way it's described. So when we look at, um, you know, when we look at integrating skills like this, um, one of the things that I've looked at and realize that that works best is, is first of all, are they reading the leverage of the defender on the receiver? And that, that is the position of the defender at the top of, during the stem, before the top of the break, and whether that's advantageous or disadvantageous. And I got that from reading Dub Maddox's books, um, the R4 headset to helmet, um, and started using that because it made sense to me. Like the best players did that even without studying this, you know, and, and now, you know, Maddox has been breaking that down for high school, you know, for his high school programs and has had a lot of success with that because a lot of football and the NFL grades this way is, or evaluates this way is in these if and statements. If you, you know, they, they Maddox talked about coaching football and how like, his quarterback's in trouble and goes, I just can't see what's going on. Well, why not? Well, it's because the kid got coached in a way where you say, all right, here we are at the line. And if the defender pre-snap does this on this side, then you need to go look here, but don't really like throw it there. Um, unless he just breaks wide open instead, look over to the right side. And then if the safety's playing here and the cornerback is playing here, then you're going to throw this. If not, then you're going to do that. All right. Now, just think about that for a minute. There were like five different if statements with three different places on the field that, and one of them was like, don't really do anything there. Just look at the guy. You you know, if you're a, if you're playing and you're supposed to do that all within like 3.5 seconds, um, that's a lot of thinking if you haven't internalized it. Um, And 
the and it's better to look at it as when you're dropping back or before the snap to look at something and go, I see the look of the defense. I can see the broad pattern of the defense. I see that these regions are likely to be open. And then as I finish my drop, I may start in one direction because of what I saw in that broad pattern that this looks most advantageous. And if it doesn't look advantageous early on before the break of the the receiver, go on to the next one, go on to the next one until you see the open break, you know, and it's, it's simpler on the mind because there's not all this if, and, but maybe this, but not really kind of stuff that quarterbacks think of. And they get taught that way in the NFL. Um, they've been taught that way their whole careers, which just tells you how smart these guys are. But then when the there's a point of diminishing returns where when you get to the NFL, you don't have five to eight seconds to throw the ball. You have 2.7 to three and a half. And the, the defenders are quicker on breaking to the ball. They're tighter in their coverage. They're more advanced at disguising things. And if you are thinking like that all the way through and you can't really see it, like the way that Dub Maddox describes it, that's why you end up like Alex Smith, where you may have a, a great career, but you disappoint relative to your draft expectation because when those pivotal plays come, you can't make that quick decision because you're waiting for it to break open because you don't trust it because you're too if anding overthinking it. And that's why they got rid of the wonder lick and why they're going towards these psychological evaluations and these quick processing, intuitive, emotional intelligence things that they're trying to do now in the NFL, because they're beginning to realize that the wonder lick was more for um, basically rating economists than it was like for actually for football players. Um, And so that's one of the things when I'm integrating, you know, when I look at that, I'm integrating, you know, I'm looking at things granularly on that level, the, how they read the coverage in terms of pre-snap, post-snap. Do they notice little pre-snap tells or post-snap tells? And do they act on that by either avoiding it or going it or, or attacking it, depending on what it, what the leverage shows. And Mark Schofield, um, you know, who's a former Wesleyan quarterback and does everyone pretty much probably knows him here. He does great work. You know, Mark told me, he's like, you know, that's what I learned from watching tape with you is that I learned that this, you know, that what you incorporate from Dub Maddox is makes more sense sometimes than knowing whether it's a Yankee concept or a Mills concept or all these other things. And I think head coaches and a lot of evaluators still get wrapped up in the theory that that is more like that's important there's a baseline knowledge that needs to be there but ultimately once you once you see that you can spit things back out and talk the language um if you can't make those quick decisions um then you wind up baker mayfield and then he's and he probably still doesn't even understand why he's doing it wrong which is why he's probably upset and feels like the browns dissed him because the browns are probably like he just doesn't have it and we can't explain it to him and he's like well they you know, and what they need to be able to explain is that they need another, they need some of these high school coaches who tend to drive up knowledge to the NFL as opposed to going going back down to explain to him, explain to them that this is how quarterback play works. So integrating to me, it's it really is the more granular you can get, the more you can find these little threads that kind of help you determine so that when I'm grading a guy, the grade's fine, but then I can look at this and say, well, why is his decision making bad? And I can look at the feet. I can then look at the 
the um, the speed of the decision making. I can look at how he reads the leverage. I can look at whether it's a post-snap problem or a pre-snap problem. Is it a pressure problem? What kind of pressure problem is it? So I'm when you the more detailed you get with those things, the more you can say things like Kenny Pickett is good against pressure, except when he has an unblocked man coming at him or an unexpected defender and he sees that flash of color and then he overacts by his feet going haywire, his head going down, the ball going behind him, and now he can't reset and fire and make those efficient decisions in the pocket. And those are types of um, pressures that may not be prevalent at Pittsburgh. In, in the NCAA, but they're going to be more prevalent in the NFL, and that may be where it trips them up. Yeah, and um, you know, just another push for your RSP. All of that's like, you know, in the all of that's in shown work in the back of the book too. So, um, you know, I think we've you know you, you've really just led us into what you know what sets great quarterbacks away from ones that can even be you know above average NFL starters. And, you know, that um, essentially that robotic play, if and that I'm thinking of transistors here and you're just like a logic system. If you know how that works, like, uh, you know, Bill Belichick, you know, can peek under the the hood and understand how all those if and statements work and you're schemed against and you're only scoring three points in a Super Bowl because your quarterback, you know, can only do what Sean McVay programmed him to do and you can't do anything else. and, And that's why you end up with Matt Stafford. So, yeah. And um, I mean, and when you talk about performance, I mean, this is the thing that people forget. Like, I'm not going to play anything for real here, but like, you know, I'm learning the base, you know, and you're not going to really hear anything because I don't have it plugged in. But, you know, I spend, you know, I have a teacher who is like literally a, a top pro and I was fortunate to get a chance to do some online lessons with them. And, you know, I'm learning this instrument. So it's like learning a language, just like with football, when people do footwork, footwork, or they do, they're practicing um, reading coverage. You know, they have to learn all this academic information, but you've, but the best ones drill and drill and drill on this, on the, the most fundamental things. And as he told me that the best players he's ever heard as musicians drill on the fundamentals relentlessly, and it makes everything else easier. So every day, literally since August, because I started in August, you know, I sit here and like you probably, I'll show you. Yeah. So I'm literally sitting here just to get form for like 20 minutes a day doing this up and down the neck. That's all I'm doing. And I'm calling out the note because this thing looks like a bunch of aisles in a grocery store and someone's saying, where do you find the, 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 the shrimp ramen? And like, I'm like, you know, I, you can't <laughs> think about it. You've got to go, okay, it's right here, you know? So you, I literally spend an hour a day doing exercises like this. And, and I, I'm old enough now, I'm like a, a player that just tells you how incredible football players are. Because to be that young and to incorporate all these different skills like that and to relentlessly practice them or to be so good that you didn't need to practice them like that, to, to get that, you know, because I mean, I'm old enough and mature enough now that like I can do this an hour every day and I like it. It's peaceful. I think about doing it. And now I'm, you know, now I'm playing stuff on YouTube for people just for fun or like on my social media stuff that, that I can play. And it's because it's not because I, I rehearse the other things so much. It's because the, the fundamentals that I did got me to the point where the other stuff's actually easier 
you, you know, to, to be able to do. And it's the same thing with, with football players. It's like, and I think that people don't realize that when they think about talent and studying talent, they think about, they think of, they, they think about the things that can be, they're less granular. So therefore they look for the more tangible things that are not that, not as granular and they miss out because they need to get more granular with what they're looking at. At least in my opinion, I found that beneficial. And, and part of it is, is that they are looking at things like completion percentage and wins and, and total yards. And that's a start, but it's like the surface of what really contextual, what the context that really drives it. And until we accept the fact that there's only a, that the academics are a baseline, the, that the athletic ability is a baseline and that we need to determine what the baseline is. Not that faster is automatically better. Not that the biggest arm is automatically better. Not that more wins is automatically better. It's what Joe Burrow has in, in, you know, really in how fast he processes here and how much he executes it with his feet to, to get in position to make these throws and decisions that he does um, with the limited arm that he has. I mean, it's not a bad arm, but it's not, you know, but in our bigger, bigger is better model, it's not good compared to Malik Willis, you, you know, but it's more than good enough for him to be, you know, a Super Bowl quarterback. Yeah, and so much great conversation there about just the process the the things you guys were talking about there and I kind of want to use that to kind of transition over to running backs because I think this running back class is another one that's really fascinating and I don't remember you know after the most people have Brees Hall and Kenneth Walker at the top and we probably won't even have too much of a conversation if at all about them because I feel like most people have heard plenty of people's takes on them and you know, I know you, you're on your podcast tour and a lot of, like you said, we were saying before you went on, you know, a lot of people hear you throughout the different, you know, podcasts in the fantasy industry, you know, in this the overall scouting industry. My take that I wanted to bring up to you and, and hear your, how you process it is I feel like everybody in the fantasy community wants to see like overall big boards, right? How the running backs are ranked top to bottom and the NFL teams are not ranking them like that because it's not one size fits all. And I, I kind of think like, how do you now with the specialization of running backs at the NFL level, how do you kind of even morph it into an overall big board? Because somebody might look at your ranks and, and maybe you, maybe there are things that you're generally concerned about. And, and, and that's why I want to bring it up. A couple guys like James Cook and Rashad White it's very hard to evaluate those guys compared to Brian Robinson or Damian Pierce. So like somebody might see them on an overall running back board and be like, wow, you know, someone really doesn't like them. And maybe it's, it's, it's not that it's that what they're going to be asked to do at the NFL level is a specialized role. So it just doesn't kind of shake out in the whole process when you're trying to lump these guys all in together. How do you kind of, these guys that are probably going to be more impactful at the NFL level as pass catchers, but are running backs. How do you kind of put them all together in, in the process of trying to make an overall evaluation of the whole running back position and then how guys kind of just settle in and then maybe take us to James Cook and Rashad White a little bit and, and kind of just your takes on those two. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to separate out players who, are passing down specialists and adjust my scoring for what I think is valuable for 
passing down running backs. Um, and then I have a ranking for that, though I don't go in tremendous detail for it with it. I just give a number, an adjusted number, and then I rank them according to that number. The problem with that is, is that I find that as much as I try to communicate that it's not the ranking, but the number on the grade that's more important, um, that people will see the the ranking number next to the name and go, oh, you hate this guy because, you know, like, for instance, let's see, where can I find him? Rashad White, you have him 12th on your pass catching backs board, you know, and and but the number is 79.9. And that number is basically on the cusp of being a contributor right away. You know, so that's not bad, you know, but the thing, the thing is, is that, yeah, are there 11 guys that I like more in terms of, in terms of um, potential for a passing down role? Yes, sure. But there may be things that those 11 guys that, you know, when teams look at them, they go, well, we think white can develop into an every down back, but he can help us being a, a, a passing down guy right away, or we like the scheme that he, the, the, the blocking schemes that he can run well in. We like some of that, you know, and, and feel like that that's a little bit more amenable because we'd like to draft a guy who can help us on passing downs now, but maybe in a year or two, he could replace our starter and we don't have to pay a big contract to our, to our starter. And we, and we've already got have a guy on our team who's now good enough to do that, or he can he can help out if the starter gets hurt. You know, Keontae Ingram's a good example of a guy who I like more than I, I think than the consensus from what I found. But he's 13th on my passing down board, even though I think he catches the ball well enough that he could ha- eventually have a role like that. But I also look at blocking as part of that matrix, and that's the tough thing because some teams. Don't care about whether you can block or not. If you're the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, they didn't care about Kareem Hunt blocking all that much. He couldn't block to save his life, really, for that first year. And I'm I'm being a little bit more, a little more hyperbole for that. But he was, they stuck him on the backside at best. Spencer Ware was the blocker on that team. And, but once Spencer Ware got hurt, they were like, well, we don't have a choice and we can't protect, we, we can't protect our quarterbacks this way. We're going to have them go out for passes because that's pretty much, what he does well. So some teams look at it, you know, there's so many different combinations of way that they look at it, that, that all I can do is give you an approximation unless I, um, unless I work for a team, you know? So um, with that in mind, I have James Cook as my number four passing down back. Um, and, you know, I think he's a slippery big play runner with that good vision. Um, he's, but he's tough at the catch point. Like he can take hits over the middle win the ball. He tracks the ball. Well, I think the routes that he runs for, you know, were good enough. You're not going to see many running backs over the years in college do things that Austin Eckler does right now with the chargers. Um, but that's still not bad. And then with white, I mean, again, I just think he has a grocery list of items to improve upon as a blocker that just won't get him that immediate opportunity unless they just say, Screw the blocking. We don't need you to do that. And we like your pass receiving so much that we're going to incorporate you in a number of ways like that. And I just don't think his good tracking of the football is enough to warrant that. Well, thanks. Um, I think when it comes to running backs, 
you know, again, we get into those lazy narratives, whether it's total number of catches or X 40 or three cone or whatever they, they want to do to say bat can do this. And I think one of the things that, you know, my big takeaways when I read through the RSP and it's, it's again, you know, not even what can't they do, but, but what can they do well? Um, and, you know, and then the developmental areas you highlight as well. And so really, um, you know, what, you know, the way that I, I kind of, I can kind of tell where I, which ones are going to be your favorites, um, when, when the RSP launches and, and I kind of thought about this, I kind of thought you'd be high on Brian Robinson and Kennedy Brooks, um, just because, you know, I was talking with Paul on senior bowl, uh, show. And I was like, I, I think Brian Robinson has got a chance to be the best back at the senior bowl because of all of the things he does so technically well. And then, you know, I think, you know, I, I'd be amiss to, um, uh, to give you a chance to wax poetic on, um, Isaiah Pacheco too. Cause I know, I know there's a, there's another name that I, I'd attach to you, uh, whenever I hear it. So what about these backs, you know, really have you, um, you know, how, how, what are they really showing, you know, that you think, um, they'll do really well on the NFL field and, and what's, what's your expectations, you know, for them, uh, you know, either in the draft or, or what they'll do well or what they'll give to a team. Robinson to me just has very efficient feet and running backs to me that I, I, I just like with quarterbacks in the pocket running backs behind the line of scrimmage. I want to see them be able to make dynamic changes of direction with as little movement as possible. In addition to, to being able to make very dynamic movements, wide ranging movements very quickly when they have no other choice, but oftentimes they have a greater choice than people realize with that. And the, you know, I often give the, the comparison and contrast between a guy like Anthony McFarland and Frank Gore um, or Kenyon Drake and Frank Gore or Marlon Mack early in his career and Frank Gore, two of them got better because of Frank Gore. Um, if there's a reason to get put Frank Gore in the Hall of Fame besides his running ability is that um, he, he was already also a player coach um, just based on watching how he played. But it's that ability he, a Arian Foster, Terrell Davis, a lot of these guys were really good at being able to minimize the space taken to move away from um, penetration or to set up blocks. They don't need a lot of space to do that. And that allows them to spend more time manipulating the line of scrimmage um, than reacting to it. And when you're manipulating and you're being the aggressor, either mentally or physically, you're always a step ahead of your competition. Even the best running backs can, like Jamal Charles, who was by no means a bruiser, he would win against defensive linemen because he would initiate contact with them and use it to spin off them. Because by the time they got their hands up to react to what he was doing, he was already he was already eluding them um, because he was the one initiating. So when I look at a guy like Robinson, he has that that smooth footwork, the the efficient footwork. To be and he's quick enough to be able to do that type of work, but he knows who he is. He knows that he's 226 and that he can run you over when he needs to, and that he can get yard tough yards that way. He's not Brandon Jacobs early in Brandon Jacobs' career, or um, 
you know, Michael Bush, you know, back in the day when Bush was the former quarterback turned running back who didn't know how to use his size. And so that plus his pass pro, um, he's, I think he can handle um, box defenders on occasion where you, where you may need him to do that for a second. You know, you're not expecting to dominate. You're just expecting to get in the way, but do it well enough that you're not a speed bump, but actually, you know, you're a thorn in their side enough that the quarterback is like, I can get away. I have time enough to get away because of what you did. Not look up and see, see, um, you know, the big 300-pound monster basically in my face mask. You know, so those skills with the soft hands are, are there for me. Um, Kennedy Brooks, it, you know, the the athletic ability was a pleasant surprise because pretty much you would be expecting that he was going to run like a, a four, seven something in the 40. And, and a lot of people were expecting that it was going to be like backup caliber metrics, but they were, a lot of them were like high end committee level, meaning contributor level play that can be starter caliber. If you comp, if you compensate that with terrific vision the micro movements to to be able to avoid angles. The best backs do that. They avoid direct angles at the latest moment with that with efficient movements, not even with their feet, but with the you know different parts of their body. And he has terrific contact balance. Very patient. Um, very smart at diagnosing pre snap box counts and different blitzes and understanding where he needs to make his first cutback attempt you know, as he takes the ball. So he's already a step ahead like that. So I love them. And Pacheco, I mean, he's fast. He's a very good pass catcher um, in terms of hand-eye coordination. Um, I I thought he just got a bad rap because he had a bad offensive line. And when you separate the things that he could do to put his teammates and himself in position for positive plays from what 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 his teammates couldn't do for him i saw a good decision maker instead of the narrative that he's a bad one because guys couldn't block for him a lot of times and he had to make decisions that maybe ran counter to the theory and that's where sometimes i think the theorists can get in trouble i might be wrong with pacheco this year it might be that that he this is still a problem with him that shouldn't be separated out but from what i saw it looked like that the theorists were more like well, when you run gap, this is what you're supposed to do. And I'm like, yeah, but your your pulling guard's supposed to get around the center soon enough so that you don't have to wait on him to get to the hole and end up getting hit and knocked in the backfield. You know, he he made it. He improvised. He adapted. He overcame. You know, as as um my daughter, the Marine, would basically say. So that's the um it, it, you know to me those three guys have you know some nuance to their game. And at least two of them have the athletic ability of starters right now. One of them is pretty close. And the one who's pretty close might be the most conceptually advanced runner of this class. I think this running back class really, the depth of it, I I find really fascinating because I think we're going to be sitting there, you know, watching the draft next weekend. It's going to be like day three and we're going to be like, wow, that guy's still on the board and that guy's still on the board. And there's going to be priority free agent running backs who, I think our ears are going to peak up a little bit more this year when some of these priority free agents, because it's going to be guys that people have fourth round grades on and fifth round grades on who could be really good, you know, functional running backs at the next level. 
part of committees, high-end backups, you know, and whether it was the COVID year and the opt-outs, like there's this, there seems like the depth of this running back class and basically all different sizes and shapes and, and scheme fits and like that, like, you know, you know, you just brought up a bunch of guys, right? It, would it be surprising if Kennedy Brooks is a fifth or sixth round pick? No. Some people like Hassan Haskins. He, does he get drafted? Maybe, maybe not. You know, you know, so many guys we could talk about running backs for hours on end. So it's going to be really fascinating because I think we know Brees Hall and Kenneth Walker are going to go pretty high. But I think after that, I think I think we're going to be surprised by how the NFL views some of these running backs yeah. and whether it's, you know, I know Damian Pierce has a lot of love in, in the draft Twitter community, whether it's somebody like him or whether it's somebody like Kennedy Brooks. Like there's going to be guys that go ahead of maybe Isaiah Spiller or James Cook or Zamir White, like, the order in which the NFL is going to pick these guys, I think is going to be very different than what we see out there as like that group think kind of, you know, kind of ranking out there. And it's going to be really interesting. And how many good running backs, like everybody could take a running back this year. All 32 teams could take somebody and put them on their depth chart. And I think they'd be okay. They can make the roster. They can yeah. be a part of our depth chart. And I think that's how deep it probably goes, which is really fascinating. Uh, Cause we know, positionally it doesn't have a lot of importance but but every team needs running backs every team needs multiple running backs you know wear and tear injuries etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think we're gonna see a lot of guys become contributors down the line but this is yeah, yeah and go. before you want to say this is the this is the year that three years from now there's going to be like where did that guy come from you know this is the this is the year that if you're picking running backs in dynasty leagues you're probably picking them to sit on your bench in a deep league and just see if they get an opportunity, as you said, due to injury. Or if you're trying to win now, you're not picking running backs. You're you're picking wide receivers and trying to get build a surplus because that's probably the only position that has some amount of safety to it, meeting opportunity. Um, and and whereas this class, maybe this the running backs may be the safest, but they have no opportunity this year. So in, if you're in a long build, I'd be building with these running backs all day and picking them late and just holding on to them and hoping that maybe I get a little bit of a surplus sooner than I thought, you know, because even a guy like Tyler Goodson, someone no one's talking about, I could see a scenario where he winds up becoming one of the better scat backs in the league um, if he gets the right fit. And nobody talks about him. Nobody even talks about Zonovan Knight being a good route runner. He might be the best route runner in this class of the running backs. And everybody just thinks of him as a bruiser. Yeah, you know, Zonovan Knight, you know, Bam Knight, nickname. Like he was a guy that was on people's radar in the summer, and then he just kind of went away. Like, yeah. you know, like he didn't have as good of a year as I think people expected, and he's been kind of like a little bit of a forgotten man, especially with the depth of this running back class. So you're talking about guys who could be really important players to an NFL team that, like we said, UDFAs, seventh round, sixth round. Like it's going to be really interesting to follow these running backs you know, and, and kind of make some rankings like after the draft. I think it's going to be fascinating, especially at the running back position. Let's transition over to wide receiver and a couple guys that I want to kind of hear your take on. Um, Justin Ross, Alec Pierce, and Chris Olave. The Justin Ross one is fascinating to me because, I, you know, if we rewound a couple years ago, you know, I feel like it would be consensus, top 10, lock them in. He's the best wide receiver on that Clemson team from a couple of years ago. And then he had the neck issue this year. He played hurt as well. When you evaluated him. And then I guess after we talk about Ross, you could also, I want to hear your takes on Olave and why you like him so much. And also Alec Pierce, 
with Justin Ross, how did how did you choose to evaluate him in terms of the amount of games you watched from a couple of years ago? And if you don't have the exact amount, don't worry. Like don't, look, you don't worry. Like feel like you have to look it up. But like, did you watch like a handful of games from a couple of years ago? What he put out there this year? Like, how do you judge that when the guy's best college production was a couple of years ago before a couple of significant injuries that unfortunately have kind of taken him out of that limelight? I'm still a big believer in his game that he can get it fixed and straightened out, you know, more, more time removed from that neck issue. Uh, but how did you kind of handle him because of that injury, because of the the long stretch of his best play, I would say. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, and I would say I handled him the way I handled Nick Chubb um, because I, I watched a lot of film on both those guys and before and after, because what I was looking for was, did I see any kind of issues with acceleration, cutting ability, speed, lateral agility, um, you know, change of direction, quickness, um, any, any issues with dealing with contact, you know, were they still aggressive on the football field or do they play, did they play shy, you know, or anything like that. And, and I watched more games than I tracked, but I tracked, the Texas A&M game in 2019, the North Carolina and Louisville and Bama games in 2019. And then I watched NC State, Pitt, and UGA in 21, which were all man coverage teams or that apply a fair bit of man coverage at times. And some of them use press, you know. So I wanted to see I, I wanted to see those in Chartham. And what I found with Ross before and after was he was still the physical player who could handle coverage, you know, trying to grab him, hold him, pull him, you know, throughout stems and at the top of his stems and even after his breaks. And he still managed to be able to track the ball well and not be phased by that physical play. He was still aggressive at the catch point. Um, I saw releases that I thought they were decent enough to build on. He did look like he had some issues with balance and being able to be as explosive as a runner after the catch in 2021. And I didn't see a lot of explosion with some of his footwork. But then we came to find out, you know, that he had a Jones fracture. And so when you're playing with a Jones fracture since the, the opener, the UGA game, you know, I think that was the opener. It was at least very early in the season. You know, he's been playing on a broken foot taking Toro doll shots that probably wear off by halftime all year. And well, that explains why he's a little slower, not as quite as quick, why he's having issues, maybe being able to make cuts the way that you would want to see or use footwork to get off the line. And, um, you know, I, I started looking at that and realizing, okay, that matches up pretty well. So does then he had surgery and the surgery, after the season, six to eight weeks of being immobilized. So the best thing he can might, might be able to do is work in a pool towards like after probably three or four weeks, maybe he's working in a pool and he's probably not doing any running in there. Um, he's probably doing more like weights and type, type of squats or things that don't put a lot of stress on the foot um, at best. So he's not doing any route running, not doing any speed training, not doing any kind of cutting drills or agility drills. And he only has six weeks from the combine compared to everybody else who has 13 to game the system. That's these, that, that are these drills. He had six weeks coming off an injury. He was coming off of a negative 
to try and just work to a baseline where most of these people like Garrett Wilson probably had 13 weeks from being relatively healthy comparatively to, to, to have 13 weeks to work towards enhancing what you already do. And mind you that Ross also had to remake his body after having the neck surgery. So the year before, and then goes to break that foot. So to me, when I look at that and go, all this technique's good. The route running seems to be fine. I, I account more of what he did pre-injury than post-injury where there were issues because, um, you know, and then with the quarterback play, I mean, yeah, I mean, you look at the quarterback play and certainly that factors in in terms of, you know, placement and things like that, kind of difficult catches that he had to make. But overall, I still had strong grades for him with the the lesser quarterback play. And then when I see that he ran a four, five, six and jumped 31 inches, I asked a scout um, and a guy with a biomechanics background, you know, he's the same guy and an analytics guy to boo. I mean, just fantastic resource who's been in, who had been in the NFL for many years. And I said, is this off base? And he said, no, he goes, it's, it should be surprising to anyone that Justin Ross was remotely healthy enough to do what he did. Like, in the at the combine like he wasn't remotely healthy yet he should be maybe this summer he'll be healthy enough yet so when we're looking at it from that perspective to me at worst he's a Hakeem next type of player who's you know who can be isolated one-on-one maybe not be the fastest dude but he can he can win against physical coverage and he's a decent enough route runner that he can work in the middle of the field and outside um so at worst he's a Hakeem Nicks Corey Davis type of player at best, I think he's better than Hakeem Nix if, if in terms of upside of that he could possibly obtain. So I'm, I look at him as a guy that might go in the fifth or sixth round of some in the NFL draft who a team gets and by mid August are like, this guy's a lot more explosive than we thought. Yeah, I mean, the other thing you talk about too is is baselines, right? And a and a four five six is certainly within an athletic baseline that that says you'd be a good starter in the NFL. Um, I do think the the tricky thing with Justin Ross is is you mentioned he might go in the fifth or sixth round, and what we won't really be able to understand and what we don't get insight into is those medicals, right? Because they'll pour through these, and a lot of times, you know, a player will fall due to medicals, and sometimes that is because there's some questions there and sometimes, you know, they surprise. And I think it's really hard for us on the outside, you know, to really know what the true case is. So it sounds like, um, you know, one of those, like, you know, really laid upside plays for, for teams um, who can give you something that, you know, like, I mean, he, he's, we have a lot of really talented receivers in this class. Um, I don't know that we have so many, that fill the type of role like as like a true outside receiver that Justin Ross could fill. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because, you know, Frank Gore had two ACL tears Mm -hmm. didn't look remotely like he was prior to those. And he dropped and teams were like, he's damaged goods. And now he might be the iron man of the, the hardest position to be an iron man in um, that we'll never see the likes of again. And then on, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you look at Ross and and he just came off of a surgery that no one's ever returned to play football in. Now, to me, I look at that as a net positive because if the reports, if the doctors aren't blowing smoke and I 
don't want to believe that doctors would be dishonest about this. If his doctor is like, listen, he has no more of a chance for a catastrophic injury than any other player who steps onto a football field. Now, if that's, if the NFL believes that, then he's fine. Then the bigger issue was the foot injury. And that's kind of the way I'm treating it. But as you know, NFL teams can have ideas in their head that they just decide we're not listening to the doctors. We're, we're going to go this route instead. Um, or there's doc team doctors who just say, we don't want to deal with the liability or whatever issue that they think there is um, with that. But yeah, I mean, when you think about other, and then, you know, you, you think about other players, like, you know, if, do you want me to talk about Olave? Do you want me to go on and talk about him? And well, yeah, I was going to lead you in, lead you into them. Well, okay. I, I mean, Olave is one of those ones where, I mean, certainly, I, I think you have quite a bit to say, um, and and he's he's one of those ones where, again, very process oriented and uh, technic and and people who value the the technical skills are are going to be high on him, and you know, so I don't think you stand alone there, but um, maybe we could talk about him as well as in contrast with um, maybe a few other players where, you know, they're not as polished, you know, these have been the common narratives for, you know, players like, for example, Traylon Burks, right. You know, again, athleticism really gets people's eyes open. And, um, you know, so maybe you could talk through a log Alave and then contrast that with Burks. And maybe when you talk about Burks, you know, one of the things I want to highlight with the, the RSP is that, you know, you have your grades and your grades of, you know, how, you know, good of a player they are at this very moment, but then the things that they can work on and fix um, as they grow as players, you know, is there an upside you see with Traylon Burks? I think there is an upside for Traylon Burks. It's just, you know, again, the upside for him is he can become a fully functional outside receiver with his size and his and the, and the speed relative to his size and his ability to go up and win the football that's improved over the years, as long as he can do a better job of being able to um, release from the line of scrimmage against physical coverage or even against off coverage that's placed in his break um, path. And right now he, he tries to mow people over or push off of them rather than use any type of move to get them to turn their hips and run in the opposite direction. There's no finesse to his game right now. And he's flummoxed by that. Like, and when you're running and Arkansas runs an offense where you see a lot of RPOs, you see a lot of like schemed plays to him where it's like, we're going to, we're going to have the read fake and then we're going to throw the slant or the crosser over the middle of the Burks. Well, if Burks isn't open because the defense is smart enough to go, I'm playing off you and I'm going to be right in your break path. And he doesn't have a way to figure out how to get around that because he's just trying to run the guy over. The quarterback spent all this energy and time and that first read isn't open and there's nobody else he's looking towards because it's a schemed play. It's not a progression play. And as a result, now he's got to run around. And that's happened repeatedly at Arkansas because he just doesn't know how to do that. And so he's got to figure that out. He's got some things to do with his hands in terms of when to use the underhand position when he's leaping in the air, he does this with the underhand position when he should be attacking and using his height, maximizing his height. He's not doing that as often as he should. He's gotten better at it, 
but there's still some issues there. The route running, again, just knowing where to break against zone coverage. Sometimes he he bleeds his route too far into the next adjacent don't the adjacent zone defenders and runs himself out of being open, not knowing where to settle down. Um, these are things that can get better. These are things that that's why he has a grade for me where he can contribute now. I don't see him as a Debo Samuel type of player. I see him more as a Kenny Galladay type who was who's a good football player if you put him in the right situation. To me, the right situation is Mar- you know, Marvin Jones on one side, Golden Tate on the other. Take away um, the top corners and let him feast upon guys that he physically dominates um, as well as being in the middle of the field. Put him in, put him in a New York Giants offense as the outside guy and I think he's going to struggle, you know, and and unless there's other people that can take the pressure off of him. And last year they didn't have that. So I, I think that's where Burks has got to get better. We're in contrast with Olave. Yeah, he's not as big as Burks. He's not as strong as Burks, um, but he's got great speed. He is certainly someone who understands how to release against coverage and does it with a lot of different ways of doing it. So he beats patient defenders. You know, it's not just whether you have the moves, but can you beat a patient defender who says, I know this move's going to be coming, and can you use your hands and your feet in conjunction to be able to set the man up and not have to do and do it efficiently? Whereas with a guy like Garrett Wilson, by contrast, when patient defenders um, deal with him and can play physical, he gets hung up more often than his, than his teammate. Um, Olave also tracks the ball really well like not only just over his head and in different scenarios, but where he can gauge complex tracking situations where he's maybe running a post and he has defenders converging from different angles and different spots of the field. And he can quickly process that instead of me turning and reaching back for the ball, where I'm going to be putting my chest in the way of the converging defenders, I'm going to let this ball sail over my head and make the later catch so that it's a more difficult catch, but the defenders won't hit me and won't have a chance to defend the ball. Um, and those are plays that I see a lot of young receivers like Seth Williams last year. Seth Williams wouldn't be able to do that in a million years. He was he was big, strong, and he had a lot of good skills And you know, as, a, as an athlete. But knowing when and how to track certain targets, got, there are a lot of guys out there who just don't do that. So... Olave for me can play all three positions. He he's on the same page with his quarterback. He makes the difficult things look easy. He can do the difficult things. Um, and he just didn't get the highlight level plays to the same degree anymore because Garrett Wilson came to the fore and Wilson is a more highlight worthy mover. So when you see the Saquon Barkley type movement, the wide receiver position, you forget about the Nick Chubb type of mover at the wide receiver position who's playing on the opposite side of him, who might actually be a little wiser about how he moves around. Both are very good, if not great, as prospects in the college level. But I want the guy who who actually makes the more NFL caliber plays um, in a wider range of things. Now, it depends on system fit, but since I don't have system fit as part of what I do, if I'm, you know, I'm thinking of a team like the Green Bay Packers, where they run you know, they run an offense where he might have to play multiple positions. Who's got the most appeal playing the multiple positions, having the most um, 
you know, refinement of skills and the baseline athletic ability of a top round pick. Well, Olave answers all those questions for me in in a basic way. You know, when you look at all the depth of how I evaluate. I think Olave, I think Olave is fascinating because I feel like the draft Twitter community sometimes sometimes gets a negative outlook on a person when they stay an extra year in college. And I feel like they they find things to nitpick and criticize them. And if Chris Olave came out last year, I thought he was a first round pick. And and I'm really high on him. I like him more than Drake London. And I think he's going to go higher in the NFL draft. And I think maybe what's out there in terms of the group think and, and, and just what you see out there, you know, when I've watched him play, you know, and I love that you brought up that he can kind of play all different positions. Like I say, I look at him and I say, He's part Will Fuller in terms of his vertical ability and his ball skills. He's part Terry McLaurin. Like, so now you're morphing really, really good players yeah. who have really good roles and have, have had success at the next level, but he could kind of do it all. Like, you know, Will Fuller, you know, he gets injured a lot, but if, if we're just talking straight vertical ball skills, like he's very good at that. But Terry McLaurin is a very advanced route runner and a very smooth player. Olave shows that too. So I think a team – you know, Green Bay would be a perfect fit. I'm not sure he even makes it to the early 20s. No. I feel like I I don't I feel like he's not getting past Philadelphia's two picks. If Philadelphia, if, if they're you know, wise, what? If they're wise, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes the Eagles aren't right. Jalen Rager yeah. over you know some Justin, of the other receivers they could have had that and, year. And and Justin <laughs> Jefferson and AJ Brown are good examples of draft Twitter who really didn't like them as much as they probably should have. I mean, these are two guys I was high on. Because they were good route runners and the nuance of that, but they get caught up in these eliminative. They they read about analytics guys who were in the NFL who use these filters to filter out players and failed with it. Okay. They fa- I'm not saying that analytics is a failure. Analytics is very important. But one of the things that they had to learn was. And the Eagles were victims. The Eagles were one of the teams that got victimized here, I would say, and by their own doing. They they were part of that 6'2", 210-pound wide receiver crowd and said, let's just take all the guys off the board who aren't that and, and, and not even look at them. Not even caring whether they fit, whether they had compensatory factors, whether they had, you know, with, with different skills and, and athletic abilities – that could make them compelling like Odell Beckham. Instead, they started eliminating guys like that. And they were warned by people internally that were saying like, I don't know, can, can we use this at the end of our process as opposed to the, 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 the beginning of the process? Cause it would be like saying, I want, you know, I only want country musicians, you know, I only want, you know, I'm looking for the best singers, but I only want guys who sing country. And then you could just eliminate Ray Charles from your list because you maybe because you decided that you wanted guys who had a certain, you know, certain background and Ray Charles sings great country music. You know, he was known for singing some country music, but like you might've eliminated him because he only made R and B and soul records, you know, way back in the day. And that's kind of what the, the, the draft Twitter community sometimes makes a mistake with is that they see that the NFL's doing this, they can calculate that too. And they're going to make that a big part of their process as opposed to understanding the wisdom of placing it in there in the same way that they looked at Dalvin cook and then, and didn't realize that maybe the way he ran doesn't fit the metrics that you use to measure runners like that. that stylistically, there's something different there. 
So, yeah, Olave to me, if you combine those two players you mentioned, McLaurin and and Fuller, you, to me, you get Chad Johnson. And that's the guy that I, I compared him to was Chad Ochocinco. I think that's the that's his upside. Yeah, and, and listen, any team should, you know, be willing to take that early and be very excited about the production they're going to get and the impact he's going to have there for sure. This is such an amazing wide receiver class in terms of the different types of players. And I think you you hit on a little bit right there, even with, with the Eagles in terms of that was like the evaluation process. It also is fascinating, though, that NFL teams and coaches get guys in their building and don't know how to maximize their skill sets and ask them to do things, you know, because I'm a, I'm a big Traylon Burks fan. I, I do think he can win in some ways right now. Yeah. <clears throat> and if he put it all together and he learned to play outside and he improved his route running, the guy I said his max ceiling and more of it's the 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 size and the frame and, and how he was using college a little bit is if he did all that, maybe he could be A.J. Brown, right? I never saw D.K. Metcalf because D.K. Metcalf, I, I never understood those comps. It actually hurt Traylon Burks, I think, in the pre-draft process when he started being compared to D.K. Metcalf. He was never going to run that kind of speed. That's not Traylon Burks. And I don't see the Debo talk at all. But it's, like, amazing. Like, if, if a team brings him in and just wants to put him out there on the island on the outside and says, win, beat your guy with good route running, He's going to struggle early on, but it's, it's amazing that these guys, like they live and breathe trying to come up with game plans and then they get guys in their building and they don't seem to know how to maximize their skill sets. It's amazing that that happens as much as it does with guys who are getting paid millions and millions of dollars to try to maximize the, the skill of players. But we see it all the time, you know, every single year. And that's why some guys who might really evaluate, we evaluate that we really like, is it even their fault sometimes that they don't make it? Like right? Th- those are things that look like a loss on our part in terms of our evaluation. But if they ended up with a different team with a different coach who knew how to maximize that skill set, we'd be talking maybe about a very different you know player in terms of the success they had you know at the next level. So I mean that's a whole nother rabbit hole we can go down. Jeff, any any final thoughts on the wide receivers before? If Matt has a few more minutes, I'd love to ask him one Absolutely. or two questions on the tight end. Do you have one more that uh, I saw a thumbs up? Is there a receiver? I said that I'm you okay with on? taking more okay. time. So we're good. Well, I, I actually haven't uh, heard anybody else quite as excited to talk about the tight end group that people keep saying it's, uh, you know, it's a it's a bit of a desert out there. But you know, I've actually uh, you know reading through the RSP, you know, hearing you talk about it, Matt, you actually get pretty excited um, about what these tight ends have to offer, and. Um, you know, I actually think, you know, the way that you evaluate it is actually a little bit different um, than the way Paul's looking at it, too. So this is going to be a fascinating discussion. And I think, you know, we can we can just highlight right now a big dichotomy between Charlie Kalar and then, you know, Paul's kind of guy who's like right up there, you know, in his top tier, too, with Jeremy Ruckert. So, you know, I'll, let's give Paul a chance to rebut and let's give you the floor to start. You know, how are you evaluating these and, you know, how does that, you know, in turn uh, get these guys to, uh, you know, where you have them ranked? Yeah. And this is just more from the standpoint of from what I'm estimating based on just conversations with um, with people in the league, as well as um, what I've read Bill Belichick talk about with the valuation of tight ends. And and Bill Belichick's kind of been had the philosophy of. Listen, if you can find a player who can block really well and be a top receiver, he's at the top of your board. 
But at the top of my board, otherwise, if I have to choose one or the other, I'm choosing the receiver and I can get a blocker later. I can get a really good blocker later. So when I'm evaluating for the RSP, because I know most of my audience is fantasy oriented, um, then I, I make sure I delineate that. I kind of delineate that out. So that for anybody who's working in the league to use this as a cross-checking device can automatically go, okay, well, you, you know, Matt, Matt's already pretty much said he's rating them more as receivers than blockers. He's giving more weighted value to that. Blocking still has a value that's important. It's going to separate out the, the top players from just the top receivers, you know, but, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly lower to the point where that maybe like a traditional NFL team would look at Jeremy Ruckert and say, dude can block, dude can catch, he can get open underneath in the zones. He's shown some proven skills as a red zone player. Um, what's not to like, you know? And then for me, that he scored lower because what's not to like for me from my idea is, do I want him lined up on the outside? No, I don't think he's as explosive for that kind of thing. Do I think that he has the skill after the catch and the explosiveness to do anything more than stretch a seam on play action passes um, or RPOs matched up with linebackers? Probably not. I don't see him being a matchup threat. I see him being more of a guy who you're going to do well out of a play action game. Maybe he can give you Austin Hooper like upside, you know, and that's still good. Austin Hooper's a good football player. Maybe not a, a fantasy favorite, but he's a good football player and has still has some fantasy potential in him in the right uh, setting. Um, but I see Ruckert more along those lines. Whereas when I look at Charlie Kolar, while he may not be as um, he may not be a great athlete either, you know, from uh, from that time standpoint, I thought that the level of difficulty of catches that he made, the way he ran routes against zone. Um, the way that he worked open and communicated with his quarterback and the, the plays that he made at the catch point, he showed, at least in the viewings, I saw um, a greater success at a higher level of difficulty of targets that fit more the things that I look at for pass catching than what I saw from Ruckert. So for me, Ruckert's like good NFL prospect, not a top fantasy prospect. Kolar has a better chance to me of being a Mark Andrews type of prospect, um, you know, if he lands in the right system. And there's like, I'm kind of upside down in that regard because there's about five players on my board who are probably higher than other people's guys between two and seven, um, who I'm like, those guys I think have more of that potential as a fantasy option. And I would rather target them late than target some of these guys early who might give you, you know, might get an early op opportunity to play, but we'll find out that they're never going to grow beyond being 400 yard um, receiving guys in a season. Yeah. I love you talking about Charlie, Charlie Collar, because I feel like the narrative I've, I haven't un, been able to understand from draft Twitter is like when I watched him and when I watched Trey McBride, who for the, the group think out there seems to be a consensus number one for, for people if you polled en enough people. But I never understood why they're, for a while. And I, I think Kolar now has regained where he should be in, in terms of the pecking order. 
But for the longest time, I, I felt like there was this big separation between those two. And I was like, I don't really get it. Like, neither of those guys are top-level athletes, but they're very refined in terms of what they do at the catch point. But, like, Kolar did it against better competition. And and you brought it up, the, the degree of difficulty. Kolar showed more NFL problems solved than a guy like Trey McBride did at Colorado State. But it was like people were gravitating towards, I don't get it. Maybe it's the stats, the market share. You know, we've had our conversations about that, that we keep that far, far on the side when we're, when we're evaluating these players. But, but I think, I think Kolar, you know, I've heard people say maybe it could be Zach Ertz. Like I I'm with that. Like I, I think Charlie Kolar is a guy who could be a really good NFL player. Uh, you know, and I'm glad now that he's kind of, pushed his way I think back into the mix where he's going to be a guy who probably goes in round three where, where I kind of think you know that's where I kind of think everybody should go personally like I think everybody you know in terms of the top guys I think round three is the sweet spot we'll see if maybe McBride slides into the back part of round two you know Rucker you kind of talked about it the weird thing about Jeremy Rucker is like he came to Ohio State as like a decorated recruit as a pass catching athletic tight end and then somewhere along the way, probably because Ohio State just has ridiculous receivers at everywhere you turn, they were like, yeah, you're probably never going to be more than option four or five. So if you want to play, you better learn how to block. And I do give a lot of credit to him that he he really worked hard to go from a guy that there was a lot of questions about whether he was ever going to be a blocker at, at the collegiate level in terms of like an inline type guy and turned himself into a very good inline blocker, which as you talked about and when you brought up Belichick, we know that's going to get him on the field because if you get him on the field, he's probably going to play most downs because you can do that. So I think there's a little bit more maybe untapped upside there, which is why I have him slightly ahead of a couple of other guys that may be like, okay, he's going to get on the field for his blocking. He's going to play a lot of snaps because he is such a good blocker. I think there's more, some more untapped, athletic upside and pass catching ability then maybe we got a chance to see at Ohio state. If he was at Colorado state, would he have put up the stats Trey McBride had, right? We'll never know that. Right. Yeah, right. But I don't, I don't think it's crazy to think he could when I watched him play and saw some of the things he did, but, but, it, but it's really, in, but I'm excited to hear more. I'm excited that you really like Kolar a lot because I feel like nobody's talking about him. You hear Trey McBride, you know, we hear a little bit about Greg Dulcich, who I think is probably of the group of guys who will go in the first three rounds or so. He's probably the one that's as most specialized. And I think he's not going to be asked to block too much. I think at the next level, he's more going to be in that Evan Ingram type role. But I, I am fascinated with this class because I do think it's more balanced than we usually see in terms of, you know, even the upside that Jelani Woods offers. And, you know, and, you know, we, we talked about McBride and we talked about Ruckert, right? Cade Auden, he's another guy that some people think could be a guy. I'm a big Cade Auden fan. Yeah. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about Cade Auden? Because I feel like he's another guy that, besides Lance Erline, who I know is a big fan of him, not a lot of people are talking about Kate Odden, and he's another guy I think is going to be in that mix there, round three. Maybe you know there's not enough spots for all these guys maybe to go in round three, so maybe uh, one or, or two slides to round four. But I think Odden is another guy that that warrants a lot of attention. I feel like all we hear people talk about really is McBride and a little bit Dulcich, and that's what that's what people think it's a really down class. Maybe because we don't have Kyle Pitts, I get it. But I, I think people are only talking about McBride and, and Dulcich a little bit that people aren't really talking enough about Kolar and Kate Odden's another one. So maybe some thoughts on Kate Odden and why you like his game. Man, he's such an excellent blocker and very reliable pass catcher. The thing that I love about his blocking is that he really understands leverage to the point that 
he there's that term that that the blocker allows the defender to move where the defender wants to go and uses it against them. Otten does that to a a, a very gr- just a great degree where he can really understand his timing of when to, where to put his hands and get that defender thinking the defender's got the advantage and then just push him completely out of the play. And he has enough of that technique to do that in a lot of different meth in a lot of different situations. He's well versed in a lot of different types of blocking, but also as an underneath receiver, whether it's zone coverage or or man to man, he has the ability to make the tough catches, take the big hits and win the ball um, in those scenarios. He didn't have great quarterback play last year, so he really didn't get to build on much from a standpoint of how he was used. Um, but he has potential with his ability to with hard breaks where he can drop his weight, doesn't do it as deeply as you'd like to see. But I think he could function well as like a second tight end who maybe works with, who gets a lot of good production early on. Maybe like if he were in Atlanta and Arthur Smith said, you know what, we need a blocker so we can keep Kyle Pitts on the outside or on the wing. But we also need that blocker to be able to function as a, as an inline tight end who can, who can win, um, you know, in the zones and stretch the seam and win off a of play action. I think Otten can do all that for you and then eventually grow into a weapon that becomes a second contract starter at the very least and be like a pretty good one. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, an eight, uh, 700 to 800 yard type of receiver who might have some red zone value and, and you can see him becoming a name even if he's not a top name, but better than where people have him rated right now. And and I think that that's, you know, for me, he's probably, I think he's one of the two best all around tight ends on the board. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm the all around fan. I, I, I am a fan of record myself too, mostly because, you know, you see the 49ers, you know, behind me and, you know, George Kittle's probably, you know, all world. Him, him with my, him with Debo now are like just, you know, I've, we've got, it's a joy to watch him, but you know, and, and I I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch this play out because, you know, I really can't argue with the strategy of taking the athletic upside pass catchers and hoping you get a Mark Andrews. But then I, you know, I sit with, you know, within Paul's point of view and, and I see someone like Kittle develop first as a blocker and he gets the kind of five, 600 yards as a tight end, as a rookie but he's enough of an athlete. And I think that's, that's the emphasis there. He's enough of an athlete, you know, to take that, you know, and build upon that into the next level. So like you said, you, you got to have, you know, the ones that have both are going to be at the top of your board. Um, yeah. And, and then the, you get the Friar Moose and the Jason Wittens and the Zach, the late career Zach Ertz's. And, and I think it'll be really fascinating. Maybe the, that if, if Ruckert goes to a place where he grabbed volume is sort of like a possession and reliable blanket that maybe then, you know, we'll see some, some value more than the, the 600 yard upside that I think is a very good point as well. Yeah. But it's been, you know, I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> we've been going all night with this and it's been an absolute pleasure to, to pick your brain, get the inside view. Um, just a joy. <laughs> what a treat. Um, Paul, anything else or? Yeah, just, you know, Matt, as always greatly appreciated. You know, I hope, uh, 
you know, I know when you do your podcast tour, we like to, uh, you know, push the envelope with some different style questions. I think, I love it. you know, I think I the listeners, it. our listeners really appreciate it because I'm sure our listeners hear you other places. So the last thing we want is just repeating of something they might've heard on another show and stuff like that. It's always one of the things that, you know, like a lot of people we bring on, they, they could kind of talk through, you know, what they like about a guy on, on the superficial level in terms of fantasy or stuff like that. And, and that's, that's their wheelhouse, but we don't get into a lot of the, the process oriented and, and how we adjust the process and how we adapt the process and how do we take a guy who barely has played the last two years, like Justin Ross and, 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 and morph that into his current projection. So it, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and then, you know, obviously I look forward to, uh, you know, having you back, you know, post-draft and, and we'll have a whole nother litany of questions from Jeff and I, once we actually know landing spots, then, you know, we can hit on a lot of guys that we didn't get a chance to talk about tonight. Uh, once we kind of see where they're landing and, you know, maybe the role that they might have, uh, please, I'm sure most of our audience knows where to find you, you know, how to purchase the RSP, but, but please share for anybody, you know, who maybe. Uh, just hasn't had a chance to check it out yet. Sure. You can find me at mountwaldman.com or mountwaldmanrsp.com. I offer the RSP pre-draft post-draft package, which is $21.95. And you get, you get rankings, you know, you get all the, all the stuff we talked about today. And then the post-draft, you get more draft capital influenced rankings with a cheat sheet that gives you the difference between my ranking and ADP. So you get a sweet spot of where to pick these guys so that you don't overdraft or underdraft them. Um, and then also, and fit analysis, things like that. And a, and a newsletter that comes with it. I also offer a 2495 package, which is projections and dynasty rankings with long build and short build. Um, and I update those projections several times a year um, and mail links out to people to, to access those with the security code from my site. Um, and, you know, that's available. It's a nice little tie-in if you play fantasy where you get the pre-draft as a way to see long-term what these players look at without the the varnish of all the, all the business end stuff that people may over or under calculate and then the post draft is like helping you with your rookie drafts now and then the projections and the the builds give you more strategic view of every player in the dynasty landscape that is on a roster and maybe even a practice squad um that i keep updated there and fifty thousand dollars has been raised for darkness to light over the past 10 years um thanks to subscribers who bought the rsp i've been able to donate up to five thousand dollars every year to that cause since 2011 i believe it was or 2012 and this is an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children through training programs of, for adults and different organizations, as well as how to handle that um, trauma when it happens, when a victim reports it, so it's not compounded by a mishandling of the situation. So they're a great group there. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you again for, you know, just asking the questions you guys did. And, and I'm starting up, I'll note this. Uh, you can check out Matt Wallman's RSP film room. I always put my stuff there on YouTube and show a lot of the tapes, but I'm going to start doing film rooms with more guests again. I used to have guests on all the time. Then it was just maybe Mark and I, or just me alone. And I'm getting back to doing that this year. Now that I've kind of made some changes with the book and have freed up some time, that's going to be my priority is having guests on. So Paul, Jeff, I would love 
to have to invite both of you guys on and we can have each of you on different times reviewing players sometime this year um so that we can we can get a chance to talk about what we love doing which is actually watching players and evaluating them Absolutely. I'm sure it's big for Jeff that we would obviously both love to do that. Guys, if you're not following Matt and checking out all his work, the podcast, the film room, the RSP, please make sure you're doing it. It is as good a resource on these offensive skill players in the NFL draft that you are going to find all the processes there, all the everything in the back he shows. It's amazing. It could be a collegiate course just trying to go through and comb through the RSP and the entire process that it is. It would have to be like, you know, like a second half of the year college, like elective class or something. It really could be uh, to, to really, you know, enjoy all the analysis that it brings. So please make sure you get over uh, to the, the, the website and check that out for sure. So on behalf of Jeff, on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.